Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode. Today's guest will be Dr. Bigby, who owns and operates a private business called The Bigby Method, which is dedicated to scaling up the nonviolent communication process to all segments of our society. Um, so can you please introduce yourself and can you also talk about The Bigby Method and what inspired you to start it? Oh gosh, that's a big question right there. Uh, well, my name is Cindy Bigby um, and I... I'm the, yes, the founder and also, I guess, a lot of the energy behind my company called The Big B Method. Well, before I got into this line of work for 25 years, I worked as a program evaluator, um, mostly in our education system, but in some social, um, social services as well. And I would basically be the person that would come in when there were big grant dollars, millions of dollars sometimes uh, for programs. And I would collect data and assess the effectiveness of programs in many different schools, school districts, sometimes at the state level. Um, And what I found during all of those years, I did that for 25 years was the big thing that was seemed to be missing, we we're throwing a lot of dollars into school programs. And at the time, the whole idea of social emotional learning was very, nobody was talking about it, right? Um, but it always seemed weird to me that we're trying to get kids to learn algebra and, you know, social studies and whatnot, but they're coming, you know, they're coming to school with a lot of things on their mind. We're not addressing that first. And we're wondering why kids aren't learning. So I always had a sense that there was something up there. Um, I got involved with a political movement, gosh, I don't even know how many years ago it was now, 16 or so years ago. I was very disillusioned when um, George Bush Jr. was reelected and I got involved with a campaign to have the United States Department of Peace bill at the federal level. Um, which would basically be a sister department to our Department of Defense. So, you know, when whenever there's some kind of conflict in the world, we send in the Department of Defense. So there was this whole push to, um, to really start to use what we know are scientifically based programs now to help deal with conflict, whether it be at home or internationally. And um, because I was feeling very disillusioned with politics at the time, I decided that I wanted to put my energy and focus on something that I thought would actually be beneficial and positive. And so I became here in Tallahassee, the local representative for that bill that we were trying to have passed in Congress at the time. And as a result of that, I learned about nonviolent communication because the people that were running the bill at the national level were... um, attempting to train those of us on the front end. How do you go in and have conversations with people that maybe don't see eye to eye with you? Um, and and yeah, so that kind of got me started with my NBC journey. Um, along with other things, I with the Department of Peace Bill, I ran into this program called Challenge Days, which was a program to bring into schools to start to address the social emotional component and bring people together, bring kids together in a more authentic way and have them uh, kind of shed what really is going on in their lives and help them have more connection around that. Um, and so when I, I actually brought the can, 
I brought the Challenge Day program here to Tallahassee. I raised, I don't know, something about $15,000 to try to pilot it in our schools because as the Department of Peace rep, I thought um, what I was trying to do here locally is get our local officials to sign and back the bill and to also get a lot of people here understanding what this bill would be. And at some point I pivoted in my strategy and I thought what would be very helpful would be to um, start to show people what, what do I mean by programs that a Department of Peace could bring, right? So Challenge Days was one of those programs. And, um, and we brought it to Rickards High School. I don't even know how many years ago it was now. Um, and we had about, we did it for four days, I think, 100 kids each day. About 25 community members would come together. And all to say that what I realized during challenges, which was amazing experience, I think, for everybody, got lots of publicity, um, was that trauma is epidemic. Like in the Challenge Day program, you end up seeing, uh, you, you break the kids into these small groups at one point and you have them share for a minute, if you really knew me, and fill in that, fill in that, if you really knew me. Um, and what I, I saw every time I ever participated in a challenge day or experience was in each one of those circles, the stories that would be coming out about homelessness and abuse and just all kinds of trauma. And it dawned on me like, oh my God, we have a trauma epidemic on hand and nobody's addressing it at all. Um, and we wonder why we have so much violence in this world. It's because we're not really addressing the root cause of the violence, which is well, the suffering that's happening silently for people in their homes, mostly. Um, and so I was really determined at that point to try to, you know, bring some visibility to that trauma epidemic and figure out a way to, to reroute it and do something about it. Um, so then I ended up... Um, also, because I was learning about nonviolent communication through my Department of Peace efforts, um, I had some really big aha moments where um, I dealt with the conflict situation very um, uh, counterintuitively. You know, usually in conflict, you're, we're trying to protect ourselves and get our points across, right? In NBC, you learn really, really deeply how to listen first, even if the person across from you is somebody that you're not agreeing with or, you know, that you even have some like anger towards, like how do you actually listen in a different way? And um, I had some really uh, mind-blowing experiences using NBC process. I decided I wanted to get trained more deeply in it. And I went out to um, New Mexico where the guy that developed nonviolent communication, Dr. Marshall Rosenberg, he, um, he used to do these nine day trainings before he passed. And um, when I was done with that training, I decided, oh, I really, I want to bring this back to the schools here. I also really wanted to gift my daughter and her friends who were, they were high school age at the time. I was trying to figure out what I could give them as a gift before they graduated high school to show them how much I love them. And I thought, well, what I could do is I could teach them NBC, nonviolent communication. If I could do that, that will be the greatest gift I could ever give these kids. And so um, I approached the principal who knew me well because of the Challenge Day program and asked if I could teach a four credit course on nonviolent communication at Rickards. And um, she was willing to work with me to make that happen. 
And so I started teaching NBC at the high school here just for free, just to do it because I wanted to get the, um, the work out there. And I did that for two years. It was an amazing experience. And then as with anything, the more you teach it, the better you learn it. So it kept me very much in integrity with uh, using NBC, which is not an easy thing to do. I was teaching to my own kid. So I used to joke, like, if you want to really learn nonviolent communication, teach it to your child and then come home and live with your child. Yeah. And so then I wanted to keep it going. And a lot of all the kids that had gone through it in the high school saw the value in it as well. And so they wanted me to kind of grow it in our community. So then I went to the local teen center, which was, which had a fledgling restorative justice program and approached them and asked, Hey, you know, can I teach this NBC thing here? So I started teaching it um, just a little bit in the program. Long, long story long. Um, they, the, uh, the guy that was the director, he ended up having to step down for personal reasons. And I was asked by the person that was over the teen center, if I'd be willing to be the coordinator of the program here locally. So that's how I started in the program at called Community Connections here locally. Um, and I ran a pro this program for close to nine years. Uh, we, we dealt with kids that were involved in the legal system, would be referred to my program and um, mostly teenagers, 13 through 18 year olds. And yeah, and I, over the years, really developed this award-winning, award nationally award-winning program on how you combine nonviolent communication with restorative justice practices. Um, and we had amazing um, results in terms of recidivism and also in terms of kids wanting to stay in the program. We would have like a, over like a 35% return rate, meaning kids that would come back. These kids would always be pissed off about being there. And then they, you know, once they learned NBC and also we modeled NBC for them, they would never want to leave. So we ended up with a very good problem of having like 40, 45 people in circle, you know, while they're use, using these processes. And I also came up with a pretty brilliant idea of bringing community people in. So we would have a one-to-one -one ratio in the circles of adults to kids, which is what helped me to grow and get visibility in our community by adults of what we were doing there. Um, and then my pivot into the Big B method from all of that after nine years of working there, um, there, as you might be aware, we've had a lot of violence in Tallahassee and a lot of shootings. Some of the kids that I worked with um, were the victims of those shootings. Um, I had one kid that I was very close to that ended up dying. And I realized um, after doing a lot of deep work in NBC that I was suffering just from all of it myself. And I made a very all of a sudden decision right before the pandemic um, that I was going to leave, leave the program. I didn't know what I was going to do yet. I knew I would always do something with the nonviolent communication process, but I just knew I was ready to move on to something else. And um, long story short, a good friend of mine who um, got with me, who's a marketing PR type person, he more or less said, you know, you want to scale this NBC because you see how valuable it is in reversing the impact of trauma. And you've been trying to do that for years through programs or through nonprofits. And if you really want to scale something, you need to make it a for-profit business. 
Um, and he also said, and you need to call it the Bigby method, which I went kicking and screaming, like, no way, I don't want to, do, I don't want to call it that. But he said, what I want, I want you to be like, you know, McDonald's is to hamburgers. I want you to be to, I want the Bigby method to be for the nonviolent communication process. Um, so, yeah, so we've been working on that now for two years. Um, we are, we've had several contracts all over the country. Um, I'm trying to break into schools and businesses, anywhere there are human beings where there's conflict. Um, and we've now, we are beginning to scale it up and we've made it more performance-based so I can actually you know, show people having the skill and collect outcome data on that kind of thing. So it's becoming, you know, a bigger thing and a much more streamlined process as a result of the work that we've been doing for the last few years. Yeah, and I think it's interesting about what you said about reversing like the impacts of trauma because um, I've been a teen attorney in teen court for a while now. I don't know if you like know what that is. It's like- I a do, I know. I know teen court very well. I used mm -hmm. to sit in the same rooms with Jessica um the person that directs teen court yep I'm oh yeah because mm -hmm. I was actually talking to her um on like a previous interview and she was also talking about um the trauma that these kids had she said that um one thing one thing that she noticed with the in common that like all of the juveniles that went through the process um had was that they all had some sort of like background trauma stemming from like their um background or like their family so I think um, it's really like interesting about um, like what we can do to reverse that trauma and like what we can do to like help these people. So, yeah. I yeah. think it goes way deeper than most people even, even understand or talk about. Mm -hmm. um, but the research in trauma shows that like nowadays when we talk about trauma, we usually talk about it like that. It's some people over there that we have to know how to work with those people over there. Right. Mm -hmm. But the, the, research on trauma shows two thirds of us have had trauma, trauma growing up, two thirds of us. And that's probably a low ball number in my experience. So two thirds of us, so most people. And what the brain research is now showing with trauma is that it has a very particular impact on the way that our brain ends up responding. And, um, and often we're in this survival mode moving in social circumstances and interacting with people as a result of having had trauma. And again, that's most of us. So there, um, so yeah. So like for instance, in a school, when a kid is showing up with a certain kind of a behavior that you don't like, often the teacher then responds to that kid. Well, the teacher is probably responding with his or her own trauma response unconsciously without even realizing how they're responding to that kid is could very well likely be their own fight, flight, freeze, which then re-triggers that kid and on and on and on. So that's why this epidemic is occurring because it's there where we, most of us are responding unconsciously with our own trauma triggers. And that's where nonviolent communication can be very, very powerful because number one, it helps you to start to have much more awareness of the way you're thinking and the way you speak so that we can keep judgment and our trauma response from happening in an unconscious way um, and keeping and making it more emotionally safe for people on the regular um, and minimizing fight, flight, freeze response that we keep re-triggering one another with. So it's, it's way more than just those people over there that have had trauma. 
or the kids in our juvenile justice system that have had trauma. It's really most of us. And it's this underlying thing that is in play with, you know, active violence that we see, but also passive violence that happens on the regular between us. Yeah. And earlier you talked about kind of like bringing the victim methods to schools, like um, records, like do you have any plans on like um, expanding this like beyond education or like, um, like what are your plans um, to like, imp- or reverse this like trauma impact that you see and like fixing the flight fight like freeze response? Well, I mean, anywhere where there are warm human bodies, there are people that can use this process. So what has been, my focus has always been on schools. I, I don't know why, I guess probably from my own trauma growing up and wanting to make sure that all kids really have the connection that's necessary and the really intentional, emotionally safe spaces. Uh, and of course, you know, if we can reverse it at a young at a young age, then we have a less of a possibility of it, you know, uh, perpetuating in our society. But what's been very weird is, well, not weird, but really a blessing that um, I've had businesses now just start to come and have found me and want me to um, to do this work. I've had several accounts just in the last year with um, individual business cohorts that go through my program because the way the program is set up is it's an eight week introductory course that is a blended learning. So uh, meaning it's self-paced material that you get every week of the eight weeks. And then we come together in a zoom session uh, each week as well. So you can be anywhere in the world and, and go through the Bigby method format. And then once you go through the eight weeks, which is the introductory part of it, um, I usually say after eight weeks, you are now unconsciously, now you are consciously unskilled. You come in and you're unconsciously unskilled. You don't even know that there's this thing that you can do in the world that will make life so much sweeter. But then when you're done with eight weeks, now you're in a worse position because now you are consciously unskilled. Like, you know, there's this thing, but you still can't do it because what we're asking is deep behavior change and thinking change of people that doesn't happen just in eight weeks time. So what we have developed in the Bigby method is something called the empathy gym. And in the empathy gym, um, it's really just like extended professional development where people come weekly um, to a practice session. Again, it's Zoom based, so you can be anywhere in the world um, and you're getting support on the regular for the skills, you're building your skills. And that's also where the performance-based portion is from there. So back to your question. So I've had these companies that have now hired me and for a good chunk of change, like I don't, I think I my rate for, um, for schools is really like almost like next to nothing and even for individuals, but for businesses, you know, because I'm, I'm trying to build this thing to scale for the good of humanity, um, you know, I can ask businesses for more and also because they're getting it catered specifically to their own businesses. Um, and that's been amazing because I'm not even use, I'm not even really focusing on that as a market yet. And that's just happening just organically. And I see more and more of that happening. So I do see that I have three um, funnels. One is just pub- the public in general. I have a public cohort that I offer for the intro for anybody like you. If you wanted to take the class, you could take the class if you wanted um, and then go into the empathy gym. But I also then I'm focusing on schools as a sales funnel and I'm going to be focusing on businesses as well as sales funnel just to kind of and then, you know, 
really the sky's the limit with this because wherever there's human beings, there's conflict. And most of us do a really shabby job of dealing with conflict. And that's exactly what I'm trying to reverse and help people with. And now I'm going to like pivot towards like you starting this business a little bit. So as a woman who started their own business, have you ever kind of felt the glass ceiling or experienced any setbacks or like how have you overcome um, difficulty in building your business? I really have never had a problem building any either of my, you know, I did program evaluation work for 25 years. And, um, and then I did go into government sector for close to nine years. And then now, you know, I'm back doing my own things. And I don't know why I don't know why I've never experienced any challenges or setbacks. I don't know why I don't know. I don't know if it's just like a frame of mind. My mom was a very strong um, woman and she was an entrepreneur and I never had any sense that she had anything that would get in the way. And maybe she just handed that to me too. Um, but yeah, I've, and work has just always just come to me. Like when I was, when I did my program evaluation work for 20 years, I never put, I never advertised or did anything to get work. It was just always word of mouth, right? What could help me a little bit. Sometimes it's, I know it's probably hard for people to believe listening to me because once you get me rolling on this, you, as you're probably already sensing, like you can't shut me up. But um, I, I'm kind of shy natured in social circumstances. And, um, and the work that I'm trying to do is big work, which requires me to like be heard and requires me to like stick my neck out in a lot of like political circumstances. And yeah, like, if I were a man, and I, I don't have a lot of confidence in those kinds of circumstances. Um, again, most people would be floored to hear that because I don't think that I present in that way at all. But internally, I get really nervous in those kinds of circumstances. Um, yeah, whether that's my, you know, because of being a female or because of my own trauma growing up, um, where I ha didn't experience my voice being heard. Um, it could be some combination of all of that. Before the Big Method, you were the coordinator of Tallahassee's Community Connections Restorative Justice Program. So can you talk a little bit about restorative versus punitive justice? Oh, yeah. Um, to me, that's a no-brainer. Like, we're, we're, I think we should be way past that at this point in, our, in the stage of humanity, at least here in the United States. Punitive is having to do with like just purely doing something to punish somebody, right? Like just to punish something. And there's not necessarily, in my opinion, learning that happens from that. Whereas the, the focus on restorative is you're not, you're not doing away with the accountability by any means, right? I mean, in our, in our juvenile justice or criminal justice setup right now, when somebody commits a crime, you know, there's, there are external people like our state attorney that's making decisions about what the punishment should be. And usually the victim has very little voice in any of that. Um, and it ends up that just a lot of ugliness happens that doesn't even have to happen that way. Um, and if, as opposed to, you know, in a restorative justice scenario, if a 
crime occurs, what you're trying to do is try to bring together the people that were harmed along with the person who did the harm and make sure that there's a conversation about that harm, like, so that really comes out. And, you know, there's no, there's nothing soft about it because if you're the person that committed the harm and you have to actually sit right across from someone that was harmed by your actions, to me, I can't think of anything that would be more difficult, right, than having to actually look someone in the eyes and hear about their pain and then figure out, okay, how do we go forward in a different way? That's all missing in the punitive um, criminal justice system right now. That whole ability to, um, to really make sure that the person that did the harm really gets the gravity of what they did. You know, you, they, they, you can bring them to court and, and tell them, but without it being set up in a way where everybody's voice is heard in all of it, usually the person that committed the crime is more shut down and defensive and not open to hearing, right? So what, what good, it, it, does the learning take place in a search circumstance like that? Often not, and I think that's probably why you see the recidivism rate in the way that we do. We're still sending all these people away to jail and, and prison, and it's not really fixing anything because we're, we're missing that ability to restore we're missing the victim's voice in all of this. And also the person who did the harm because having worked in the community connections program and hearing about, you know, all the kinds of criminal activity that people are involved in, there's usually so much more behind the story than ever comes to visible light in our criminal justice system. There's so many, so much more complexity that doesn't get taken into account. Um, it's pretty tragic the way we have things set up right now, in my opinion. Yeah, and what measures can we as a community take to improve the, the system so it focuses on the healing process rather than the punishment? Well, first of all, I think people need to be educated a whole lot. I, and I, I don't think most people understand at all how our criminal justice system works. There's a lot of things you can really get me in a rant now on this one. Um, yeah, there's just middle-class white people of which I am one really, I think have no idea of what, how our criminal justice system works. Before I got into the work that I did, I didn't really understand what the, what the state attorney did. I didn't really understand what our public defenders do. Right? I didn't understand even the whole idea of being arrested like right now, this is a big, big thing to me that when somebody's arrested for a crime, oftentimes you'll, if you open up our paper, it, I'm seeing it a little bit less, but still happening. When someone's arrested, you'll see a picture of this person that's arrested for a crime. And like, and usually they're black and usually they're men. Usually they're in their like 20, sometimes not, right? But that's pretty much what people are seeing in the paper on the regular. And before I was went into uh, restorative justice, it never dawned on me looking at those pictures. Like it stamped this like this picture of people in an incorrect way on my psyche. Like those are dangerous people, right? Um, as opposed to just not even realizing like those people were not even convicted yet. They are just arrested. Meaning like they think maybe they had something to do with their crime. But, the, you know, this whole idea of innocent until proven guilty 
is really BS. I mean, it's total BS because if you were to do um, a little analysis and go find out who's sitting in our um, Leon County Detention Center right now, also known as our jail, the majority of people in there are probably there a year, two years now because of COVID, they're really backed up. Um, and they are all arrested. They have not even had their day in court yet. Many of them haven't even heard from their public defender yet. I know this, my daughter is a public defender. When she first started, she had a caseload of 400 people, you know, like how do you, so you have people now that are arrested sitting in our jail, waiting to even find out like somebody to look at their case. They have no recourse of getting out of there, sitting in there for a year or two. Um, and again, this is all stuff that most, I think, middle-class white people don't even realize this is the stuff that's going on. So no wonder those people are damaged when they get out of jail. You know, that doesn't, you don't ever hear that. So there's just, we need to be educated first and foremost. That would be the, there should be like major education campaigns so people understand what what is going on about bail bonds and how that whole system works, about people being on electronic um, monitoring. Most people don't realize like when a person is on electronic monitor, when they get out like out of the jail and they're on electronic monitor, they have to pay for that. The people with the electronic monitor have to, it's like hundreds of dollars a month to have an electronic monitor put on you. These are people that couldn't afford it to begin with. That's why they probably got involved with criminal activity to begin. So there's just so many things that need to be addressed first with education. And then maybe well, we've been trying to have a uh, restorative justice process here in Leon County for years, like bigger than Community Connections. You know, Community Connections only is a small um, piece of what needs to happen. And they don't even run fully restorative justice conferences for many reasons. That's a whole nother conversation. They do amazing work. And the NVC part is, is a huge um, part of what they do. But yeah, they, they, we don't have, really, we don't have a, a comprehensive restorative justice program here in Tallahassee. And there have been people that have been trying to make that happen for years in constant communication with all of our leaders. And we're still waiting on the funding for that. So, yeah. Why go on to start your own business and why not just stick with being a coordinator for a restorative justice program? Well, that's a good question. Because... Um, the problem is epidemic. It needs to be scaled up. So it needs to have the backing and the resources to make that happen. And I found it impossible to make that happen within the city. Um, it was it was impossible to try to scale it. It was all I could do to even get my um, facilitators to be paid as full-time people. They finally are now right after I left, they, they, they moved them over to full-time positions. But I mean, it was free. We, we never even knew like how solid was our program. So to try to like get it to a whole nother level um, just wasn't happening. You know, just, there's just limited funds and everybody's hands in, in the pool trying to, you know, get the limited funds and, you know, it becomes very political and, yeah, and now I don't have to be beholden to any of that. Now I could just do what I want to do, get it out there, you know, and hopefully get, you know, get the funds because what I'm doing is so valuable that people will want to pay for it. 
Thank you so much for listening. Um, I hope you enjoyed and stay tuned for the next episode.